This is Geek Gab with your host, Daddy Warpig. I am back. Geek Gab for Saturday, April 14th, 2018. I have terrible news for you today, folks. Absolutely terrible, horrible news that is not related, by the way, to the August assemblage of guests that we have on the show today. My horrible, terrible, terrible, horrible, horrible, terrible news is that my co-host John is not going to be with us on the show, but to make up for it, and I will be honest, this is the only way I could make up for it, is we have brought a vast panel of intelligent and educated and talented guests here on the show to fill in in some small way for that unfortunate gap I have left in your hearts for this week. Um, we are talking today with the authors who have been nominated for the Prometheus Awards by the Libertarian Futurist Society. The Libertarian Awards are a ancient and storied award going back to 1979 that are nominated for libertarian-oriented fiction. And so without further ado, I am going to allow my guests to get a word in edgewise so that uh, we can do some quick introductions. And you may know who is on the show. Gentlemen, how are you this Saturday? Doing great. great. Doing awesome. good. Thanks. Now is the time, if you felt the need, that you can turn your hearing, uh, your volume back up. It's <laughs> not what's... <laughs> too much for our listeners uh listening in uh uh, uh daddy warpig or as i've chosen to call him daddy warned us that uh, the intro was going to be insanely loud so we all had our headsets turned down but it wasn't that loud it wasn't bad um so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself since you've taken the lead here all right. Uh, I'm Andy Weir, author of The Martian. That's what I'm most known for. But I'm up for the award because of Artemis, which is my second book. And it's about a city on the moon that has a you know, fairly uh, laissez-faire capitalist uh, <laughs> economy, I, I guess. I am disappointed, honestly, that you did not mention your other claim to fame. Uh, what's that? Your webcomic. Oh, yes, Casey and Andy. Which yes. I have read and oh. which has its own GURPS source book. <laughs> yes, it does. True fame. Yes, true fame. That's when you know you've made it. Um, yeah, uh, I, for many years, wrote a webcomic called Casey and Andy, and that was just a good, silly fun about a couple of mad scientists. Who die a whole lot. They die a lot, and then without explanation, they're fine You know, the next, the next day. <laughs> I was introduced to your webcomics by uh, Eric Burns, um, his uh, webcomics criticism site, which is unfortunately now defunct. But uh, I read through all of Casey and Andy, actually, and read uh, some more earlier this week, just in preparation for the show. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Next in line, um, we have Carl Gallagher. Hi, I'm Carl Gallagher. I uh, one time a designer of real rockets who's now turned to writing about fictional rockets because it's actually a lot more fun be, uh, to get the book out the door than to watch your rocket canceled for lack of funding. Uh, I have published the uh, Torchship trilogy, um, three novels, Torchship, Torchship Pilot, and Torchship Captain, which, you know, in addition to various adventures against, you know, kidnappers and poachers and other stuff, 
our heroes get sucked into a conflict where humanity is facing off against killer robots and have to deal with the question of what's the best way to deal with them, total centralized control to make sure that they can't get a, you know, a wedge in, or let a thousand flowers bloom and let individuals try, try every option to find the best way to uh, survive despite the uh, artificial intelligences. And humans being humans, that conflict turns violent. And uh, honestly, hearing that you were at one point a rocket scientist um, does make some of the more interesting things I found about your book. And, and I mean interesting in a good way. Um, the, f the fact that you were so specific about the internal layout of the, I know this is a tiny point, and people are going to be sitting here thinking that that's what you focused on. He's got a war raging across the entire galaxy. And what you focus on is the internal details of the ship's layout. Yeah, I did. I thought that was really, really interesting how you did that and how it laid out. And especially the, uh, the, the illustrations of the same during the book. I really liked the layout of the ship. That really so goes, goes back to being a game master and having the deck plan for the ship laid out as we played Traveler or a Firefly <laughs> role-playing game or whatever, and just I carrying had, like, that on into the picture. I had a hundred of those Traveler books, and my dad threw them away when I went to college. Oh, oh. It's like, you know, those little staple-bound, you know. Oh, gosh, yes. Those little oh, I still have some. Uh, uh, Beowulf. I, I have no idea what those things would be worth today, but. <laughs> the good news is they're not too expensive. Um, I only bought a few back in the day because I was too young to have much money. So I had been lurking on eBay thinking maybe it's time to put together a complete collection. So uh, you, you can get them back if you want to. Yeah. Also, if, if you're not a stickler for having the original books, which some people may or may not be, they're available via print on demand on DriveThruRPG. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, mm -hmm. People can get the same text, same illustrations, same everything as the original books, just not the actual vintage books. Bah. It may not matter. I, I, I don't care too much about vintage, but I do like uh, dead trees in my hand. So um, since you're talking anyway, go ahead and, and introduce yourself, oh, Travis. Great. Hi, uh, Travis Corcoran. Um, I'm a software engineer, and uh, I've run a couple of small companies, uh, e-commerce and other such. Uh, things and um, let's see these days I live on a farm up in New Hampshire where I do remote contracting and write a little bit of science fiction um, I'm here because of the first book in a four book series uh, the powers of the earth which is followed by causes of separation which is uh, pre-order at Amazon right now <clears throat> and this is a series about a uh, independent uh, anarcho-capitalist as opposed to laissez-faire um, colony on the moon um, in the year 2064. Uh, so like Andy, I've got a uh, libertarian society on the moon. And uh, like Carl, I've got AIs or AI. And uh, and then I guess off in the direction of David Brin, I've also got uplifted dogs where uh, the humans who designed them sort of overshot the mark and uh, are a standard thief or two above baseline humans uh, as far as IQ. So. Um, that's what I'm about. Excellent. And now we come to the traditional death match between uh, Ken and John to see who gets to go next. Ken, this is John. It's all you. I yeah. Guess. Hi. <clears throat> Hi, John. Um, my name's Ken McLeod. I'm a science fiction writer. I live in Scotland in the UK. And I've been a full-time writer since 1997. And before that, I was a programmer. And before that, I was trying to be a scientist. And before that, I was a science fiction fan who got 
misled into thinking that because I was a science fiction fan, I really should be a scientist, uh, which I'm not. And the novel I'm on the shortlist for the Prometheus Award is the third volume of a trilogy. The trilogy is called The Corporation Wars. The novel is Emergence. The previous two are, and um, looks around and tries to check, remember what they are, um, Dissidents and Insurgents. And these are published by Orbit. And they are set about a thousand years in the future around another star about 25 light years away. And it's a robot interstellar colonization is going on with the prospect of terraforming. And there's the usual um, slightly hand wavy um, post singularity stuff about uploading and downloading and so on. And the robots, some of the robots become self-aware and start basically to reinvent their Lockean property rights from the ground up and things get sticky after that. I, I want to confess my, um, what would you call it, my lack of cosmopolitan knowledge. The only reason why I know how to pr correctly pronounce your last name is because I've seen Highlander. <laughs> there can be only one. Uh, so, uh, so with the last name of McLeod, you are actually of, of Clan McLeod, right? You're Ken McLeod of Clan McLeod. Uh, yes, <laughs> um, not not not. <laughs> but I, you, you can't call me Ken McLeod of Clan McLeod because McLeod of McLeod is the name of the clan chief. Not that ah. I have anything to do with him. But <laughs> that's that's the formal definition. He lives in Dunvegan Castle, quite near where my, my father grew up. And really, we have no connection with them whatsoever. Uh, Mr. Hunt, I, I guess we're down to you. Uh, unfortunately, Sarah Hoyt could not be with us today. Um, and so we wish her the best of luck with uh, whatever she has going on. Hey, so, hi, um, and thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate joining this distinguished a gathering. Um, my name is John Hunt. I'm a co-author with Doug Casey of Drug Lord. Six or seven novels. The first one was called Speculator. And Doug and I write these together, plus do a whole lot of other adventurous things within the libertarian constructs and anarcho-capitalist. Is traveling between Miami and Argentina today, um, so he's not here. But I greatly appreciate being here. Our, our uh, book that we were um, we became a finalist for the Prometheus Award for was um, is called Drug Lord. Came out last fall, and it's the second uh, episode of Charles Knight's uh, multiple career life, where he's moving from career to career, all of which are generally considered immoral or unethical by the regular world. So, but but he is a moral actor always. So the, the first book, he's a speculator. Second, he's a drug lord. Third, he's assassin, the fourth, he's a terrorist, the fifth, he's a warlord, and the sixth, he's antichrist. And huh. these, these books always... It's a uh, fairly common career path, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it works. But he gets to, in, in Drug Lord, it's he's taking on two careers. He comes back to the United States after many years, and um, 
he picks up two concurrent careers, one of which is as a uh, starting up a pharmaceutical firm and in the legal pharmaceutical realm. And the second is running black market illegal drug operations um, in and around Washington. And it gets to compare the morality and ethics of, of the formal legal pharmaceutical industry versus the, um, the free market activities of the drug world. And, um, and that's, it's great fun, but in the process, what makes it science fiction is that uh, he invents or he, he, he helps get to market a, a drug that prevents people from lying to themselves. And that elimination of that ability, the drug is called Naked Emperor, and that ability to not lie to yourself is a huge threat to uh, the established order, which quickly moves to ban it and uh, makes a new way to extinguish Naked Emperor from the planet along with Charles Knight, so that such things as um, various religions and ideologies and uh, central bankers don't get Right. And whatever else happens to thrive on people's abilities to uh, not necessarily tell themselves the truth, um, all, all of them are threatened by this. So they all gang together and leave Charles Knight up against the world. Um, okay, folks, now we've got introductions out of the way. Um, and because he's running short on time to be on the show, I'm going to ask Mr. Weir a question, uh, a question that uh, uh, Carl Gallagher actually suggested, which is, how did your work involve personal liberty, and uh, why do you think they nominated you for the Prometheus? Sure. Uh, well, first off, I just want to apologize to uh, to everybody. Uh, I failed to correctly subtract three from the East Coast time of this to uh, figure out my own uh, schedule for today. I'm in the I'm on the Pacific Coast, and uh, so I ended up with a scheduling conflict that was entirely my fault. So. Uh, that apology out of the way. Um, I think uh, so. Basically, I didn't set out to write a story about you know, oh, this is going to be about libertarianism. It was the other way around. I said I want to you know kind of figure out what a society on the moon would look like. The first the first city on the moon. There's only about two thousand people there. Its income is primarily from the tourism industry. The only conceit in the story is that the price to low Earth orbit has been driven down low enough that middle class people can afford to go into space and you could afford a you know even even if you're just like a normal like kind of working class schmo in america you can afford to go to the moon as sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity anyway so i just kind of tried to guess at what the economics of the city would look like and it ended up being libertarian because that's pretty much how all frontier uh frontier civilizations or little societies are. They don't have the resources to have a bunch of rules. They don't have the resources to enforce a bunch of rules. And in fact, most of the rules in Artemis, the, the titular city, are just um, safety. Like, okay, we're living in a, you know, a, a city that's on the moon. So, you know, we're really going to care if you like endanger the hull, <laughs> right? But um, stuff like economics ends up being completely unregulated, which causes opportunities for some people and also causes problems for others <laughs> in the story without giving away too many spoilers. Um, let, let's ask the same question to uh, Mr. McLeod. Well, I'm very honored to be nominated, and I suppose the reason why these books got the nomination, because the previous two were nominated last year, 
um, is that they, although I'm not personally really a libertarian or whatever, and except in a very general sense of civil liberties and personal liberty and so forth, I do take libertarian thought very seriously and have done for many years, in fact, right from the start of my science fiction writing and before that. And um, the, the corporation wars, the whole idea of it was actually inspired by a kind of chance juxtaposition of two book spines on my bookshelf when I was frantically casting about for my next pitch a few years ago. And that was um, Mind Children by Hans Moravec. Ah. Ah, and The Machinery of Freedom by uh, somebody called David Friedman, who I'm sure you've heard of. And <clears throat> so you suddenly... for one second, which is to say that I specifically call out that book in the afterword to mine. So uh, fascinating. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been alluding to it more or less from the start. But the, yeah, the idea in Moravec's book, he has a chapter called Wildlife, I think, where the idea, which has been often used in many different economic philosophies, actually the idea that eventually production and so on gets sufficiently automated that you can move all industry off earth. And basically everybody is either a, a rentier or, you know, you're, you're basically everybody is born rich if you have shares in, in the machinery or could be. And we are, the human beings are kind of, living along and humanity is settling in for a long and happy retirement and the machines are off doing all the work and as long as the machines aren't conscious of course that's not a problem um but as it turns out when the machines start becoming conscious and self-aware it does become a problem however this has been foreseen by the artificial intelligences that behind the scenes really run the show on earth and in the solar system and have a representative in the extrasolar colony. It's called the direction. The direction has foreseen this and they have uploaded the personalities of dead war criminals as they regard them from the last world war. And the last world war was fought at the end of the 21st century between the the reaction, another basically neo-reaction, which I recently discovered when I started was casting about for ideas for these books, and accelerationists who are kind of, in, in some ways, far-left extremists who want to get through capitalism as fast as possible, therefore they want to let it rip. And out of the chaos and destruction that these two warring ideologies cause, the direction has emerged and clamped down. And so these dead war criminals that are, have their mind states uploaded, stored and sent off in the, in the probe to the other star. And when the robots get start getting uppity, they get reawakened into virtual environments, which they have um, immense philosophical trouble sorting out between their virtual environments and reality and um, then into little robot bodies who go out and fight the rebellious robots. So to complicate matters further, some of, some of these people are from the acceleration faction and others are from the reaction. And 
as you might imagine, the only real good guys in the story, in the in the three novels, are the robots. It's interesting to me, looking at the books that have been nominated, and also uh, that there seems to be some uh, commonalities between, and maybe that's a result of the nominating process or who did the nominating. But as soon as there's a lot of uh, threads, especially with like AI. Um, narco-capitalism and so forth is that a reflection of uh like the zeitgeist sorry if i'm using you know arrogant german terminology the zeitgeist or was there something specific that may have prompted all of these similar things to come out at the same time anybody can answer you whoever has a thought on this well in my particular case uh the ai was not you know necessarily part of the zeitgeist although it certainly is um but the fact that my novels uh, do, do two things, and I'll only address one of them right now, which is they are sort of a dialogue with Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Uh, so if you have uh, Mike um, in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress and you want to sort of update that and interrogate it and uh, make it a little more complex and layered than, you know, Heinlein, hey, friendly AI, because of course it's friendly, uh, bring it into a sort of um, less wrong uh, rationalist sphere where you have to worry about AI motivations. Um, you know, th this is one of the great things from Heinlein that you need to unpack and make much more complex and then investigate. So, you know, there had to be a moon colony, there had to be an AI. Uh, th that's my answer, at least, and I'll let others speak. It It's a sensitive subject right now because we're starting to get bit by the leading edge of AIs having real impacts. I mean, there was a you know, a case that marketing people tell each other where a father found out his daughter was pregnant because the marketing software for the Target stores started sending coupons for diapers and baby formula and stuff because they had analyzed her purchasing pattern and gone, ah, this person is pregnant. She's buying the pattern of, of purchases of someone newly pregnant. But this teenage girl had not told her father but nevertheless, the software, which is not intelligent software, it's not self-aware, but it's still figuring out something that humans hadn't figured out and upsetting the hell out of some people. And so this is something we're going to have to figure out how to deal with one way or the other. And one of the aspects I brought up in mind was that, you know, the, the revolt of the artificial intelligences I'm going to spoiler something for you here. Turns out it was not them becoming self-aware and revolting, but safety mechanisms that had been installed had failed in a catastrophic way. And so the infrastructure of the planet collapsed, killing lots of people and forcing others to flee the planet to survive. Um, and I have read the Torch Ship series, and I thought the... Uh, origin of the crisis that brought down the civilization on Earth uh, was was quite interesting and quite clever. I really, really liked that. Um, it, it shows, and it's, the reason why I especially liked it is it shows what happens when programmers who are thinking logically implement something that's perfectly logical that happens to be an absolute total mismatch with, that, with how real humans behave in the real world. People who are programmers get bit by that all the time. I was a programmer for 25 years. <laughs> I know. Uh, I know how that is. Um, what is it in in software? We have that term. Um, the the kind of marketing idea where there are people say like, "Oh, we should make a spreadsheet application that also is an email client," <laughs> and people are like, "Because almost everybody who uses one will will want the other." And the analogy that explain why that's a bad idea is say like, "Well." 
I've noticed that everybody who goes to this burger joint gets a hamburger and a milkshake. So we should have a hamburger flavored milkshake. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so. That sounds so much like my own experiences in working in a, a very unexciting field of IT, which was simply in really administrative software, both in factories and in universities and other institutions, utilities. And one of the absolutely characteristic failure modes that I found was that the programmers are solving a problem that hasn't been sufficiently specified by the users. And uh -huh. I, I, I greatly, you know, and after six weeks of work or whatever, you bring your shiny application to your, your ostensible end user and you find that wasn't really what they wanted and they really wanted something quite different. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and this happens in the hardware field as well. I've worked on several projects where it's like, well, we'll do something to serve all these different customers who actually have conflicting requirements. And so it becomes a monstrosity. Yeah, and I, what I dread actually is that at the moment, AI, the whole AI field is, may well be in very much that position with the mass of the mass of humanity as the as the users who haven't specified what they want, and the tech geeks who are developing the AI as the, the bushy-tailed programmers. I live in the uh, heart of Silicon Valley, and uh, I've got a lot of friends who work at Google. And there's one, <laughs> one uh, he says he works, he works, he works in the part that's working on like self-driving cars, that sort of thing. And they have like two signs up right next to each other on the wall. Uh, one of them says like you know, a, you know, self-driving cars group. Um, don't worry, we're making AIs, but we're not making robots that they can you know freely <laughs> run around in. And then uh, the other. And and that's from the a you know AI group, and then the other poster is from the robotics group saying, "Don't worry, we're making very strong robots, but we're not going to give them free will." <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be interesting to see how the artificial general intelligence develops and who will be their mentors, who will be the teachers, and how how their morality will develop based on who their teachers are. If the bureaucrats and politicians set up the well, regulatory regime for them, they may end up being quite amoral, immoral, or you know, antithetical to human morality. Well, they, they, uh, AIs will absolutely be antithetical to human morality because they will just calmly solve whatever problem you hand them. You say like, you know, it'll be like, oh, we need to reduce crime, and it'll tell you a bunch of ethnicities to kill off. And you're like, no, 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 that's that's not that's not that's not how we want to do this. And that's eh, the quickest solution. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 AI, bad AI, you know. And so, um, w what I think will be interesting is when we have AIs that are um, giving us really good and useful information that benefits society, but we don't understand how it reaches those decisions. So for instance, nobody really understands the details of how AlphaGo thinks. Like AlphaGo is an AI that can play Go better than any human. And they say, and there are Go masters who analyze its playing style and they still don't fully understand the philosophy it's using because it doesn't really have a philosophy. It's a, it's a collection of complex neural network layer after layer and nobody really understands it. So what I think will be interesting Sorry, uh, but what I think will be interesting is later on when we have some really complicated neural network that always gives good advice on what to do for the economy. And it'll just be like one day it'll be like, hey, um, 
lower the tax on barley production by 0.003%. And we're like, okay, and we do that. And then suddenly we get like 20 years of boom across all sectors and we don't even understand why. (laughs) You know, I I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, the the interesting thing is not, we can't understand. um, The interesting thing is coming to the realization that there isn't anything necessarily to understand. Uh, You know, and we've got this, course in Western philosophy and Western science where we sort of looked for reductive principles. And, you know, there have been some thinking that, you know, hey, perhaps the era of reductive principles is over. You know, it's a great tool. We grabbed all of the low-hanging fruit. Um, but some equations you just can't simplify. You can only use numeric methods and actually figure out, you know, what the graph looks like. Um, and there might not be general rules of thumb that an AI is using to, you know, play Go. It might not be trying to grab space. It might just, you know, there's this mess of computation and this is what comes out. Um, and, and that's an interesting sort of philosophical twist when you dig deep enough that not all things that work necessarily have uh, arbitrary short little sentences that make sense to humans to explain them. Let me um, interrupt for just a second because I believe it's almost time for uh, Mr. Weir to take off. Uh, I'll give you a uh, final chance to say whatever you wanted to say about your book and the Prometheus Awards and then... Um, well, I'm honored to be nominated. Um, I will say that my book was not in any way an attempt to uh, pursue an economic or political agenda or moral. It's just that I think is the emergent behavior of people in a frontier society. And uh, yeah, it'll be really, really great to see how this how this pans out. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> great talking to you. Thanks for coming uh, on the show, sir. But not that much luck, right? Because uh, <laughs> so, but like some luck. <laughs> I wish you all to win. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you very much. And again, I'm sorry I have to take off early. Have a good Saturday, sir. Thanks, you too. Take care, Andy. Thank you. Um, Well, now that I've interfered with the discussion and killed it stone cold dead, let me ask uh, another question to the group about some of the themes that I saw that were in common with the books. By the way, let me tell this to the audience. There are two links in the description below the video. One of them will take you to information about the Prometheus Awards itself. That's the first link. And the second one will take you to the Prometheus Awards finalists. That is the people who we are having on the show today. And in that uh, press release, you can read about which books have been nominated. And there are also Amazon links to where you can go to purchase the books uh, if the descriptions uh, are enticing enough that you want to go go ahead and read them. The links are right there. Again, that's the uh, it talks about the finalists, and that's the second link under the video. So we've set this up. I've set this up for you that if you want to plumb the depths that we may not touch on the show, you can go ahead and click on either one of those links, and you will have that all delivered right to your doorstep because that's the kind of totally awesome host I have. Okay. Back to the discussion. The thing I was going to ask about the zeitgeist, or at least the common elements in these books, is what's the deal with narco-capitalism? Uh, by what's the deal? Are you saying what's the overview of what is it, or why is it that we are interested in talking about it? Sure, any or all of that. Okay. I, I'm curious as to why that uh, became such a strong theme. I don't know that uh-huh. you know but I, yeah. that, I mean, uh, so, so there's selection bias, right? I mean, you're going to the Prometheus Awards. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you went to the uh, Trotskyist Fiction Awards, you'd be asking, now, why does everyone talk about communism so much? And, and they keep harping on how Stalin got it wrong. Um, but uh, that aside, um, there was a phrase that Andy used, which is emergent properties. Um, 
you know, a, a lot of times progressives will talk about, you know, capitalism is a system and we've constructed it. It works this way. And uh, I, I agree with Andy's point that, uh, you know, I, I think trade is an emergent property and you don't need a government to create trade. Uh, there's all of these, you know, stories documented in history where, you know, an exploratory group that doesn't speak a language encounters another uh, a tribe and they walk up and they put down three steel knives on the ground and step back, um, you know, and, and the other uh, natives come forward and put down six coconuts and then the first people take back one knife and they negotiate things. Um, you know, uh, trade creates value and creates utility where none existed before. Uh, it increases the size of the pie. So I, I think that all human and non-human societies uh, will create trade. And um, so th there's one thought that, uh, you know, hey, anarcho-capitalism is better. I'd, I'd be happy to make that argument. Um, but there's just another thought of, hey, it's an extreme on a continuum. And extremes on continuums are always more interesting. You know, people want to read and watch Man in the High Castle because it's under, you know, the worst possible governments. Um, you know, people want to watch life and death situations or, you know, romantic comedies. They don't want to see a happy enough couple wake up, make breakfast and go to their separate jobs. So I think you're going to find uh, tyrannical, terrible things and, uh, you know, utopias both overrepresented in literature and, um, and, and being sort of extreme, it creates all sorts of uh, plot elements. There's a lot more exciting things happening in a Western where there is minimal government um, or, you know, on the moon where there's minimal government and, and there's more exciting things happening under Nazi occupation. Uh, so that, that's my answer as to why you're going to see anarcho-capitalism in fiction. And I can throw out my answer too. Um, this is John. Can I go ahead? Yeah, please go ahead. Uh, I see it as a combination of two of the most moral constructs. Um, the anarchical construct and the capitalist construct. And here, here's how I'll explain it, which might be old hat to the people on this call, but maybe somebody who are listening might not know these, this frame of reference. So um, anarchy, um, you know, it's, it's different. It's a monarchy is one ruler. Oligarchy is multiple rulers. Well, it seems like he very definitely has laws. They're the natural laws, the ones that, that if we abide by, we stay alive and thrive. So anarchy means no rulers. Um, and then capitalism is that, is that wonderful economic system in which to succeed, you wake up in the morning and you work your butt off as hard as you can. Needs of other people. And that's not the way that the socialists will word things, but that is the reality. To be successful in capitalism, you need to serve others extremely well and extremely efficiently. Um, and that's a highly moral entity because it's also, on top of it, it also fits into the voluntarism construct in which um, coercion is coercion is the evil and anything voluntary and peaceful is is okay and tolerable. So I like I like putting these two together. And Doug and I both like D Doug is pretty much a, a straight anarcho-capitalist. I have a lot of libertarianism, uh, but uh, putting these together and writing about what a world would be like or could be like or, or some of the world could be like if if people lived with the concept that we don't need to rule over others and that we should be engaging in voluntary relationship what can that world look like um and how much fun we could have in it yeah i find that very interesting i am not an anarchist myself in uh, the jargon of libertarianist sub-factions. I am a minarchist uh, for some of the reasons that I think Travis uh, illustrated in his book, which is when you have no, 
you know, top referee that everybody will agree to the decisions of, you wind up with a lot of, you know, nasty situations that in the real world will wind up with faction fights and feudalism. Uh, so what I will have is the extreme in, in my story is a minarchist situation where you have a government of very minimalist rules. And on the other extreme, you have some tightly controlled governments that I think, you know, cater to the needs of, let's face it, there are people out there who want to rule for everything. You know, they never want to have to, you know, have this gap where something is totally uncontrolled, which I think most of us in, you know, probably all of us in this group would hate living under that kind of thing. But there's some people that it appeals It's true. To. I was in Massachusetts and I hated it. I, I spent four and a half years in Massachusetts, and I was, when I ventured outside my ac academic island, yeah, I was seeing all sorts of stuff. And from what I've heard, it's only gotten more insane since. Mm -hmm. But so I, you know, in mine, I'm showing conflict of different types where you have the, uh, to use Virginia Postrel's terminology, the uh, dynamic societies where individuals can strike out on their own. And then the more static ones, which, you know, want to have a rule for everything. And of course, even in the static society, you've got the internal conflict of, are you going to, from first principles, come up with new stuff? Or are you sticking to some traditionalist book, whether it's the Bible or the Quran or the writings of Confucius? I'm waiting to see if anybody else has a comment on that before I jump in another direction. No, okay. And just to finish off on anarcho-capitalism, I don't believe in it, but I find it very interesting. Way back when I first encountered libertarian ideas, it was through anarcho-capitalism. And being one of these geeky, um, I suppose, far too logical living in the head types, I took it all very, very mm -hmm. seriously and thought through it. And the, the thing that kind of fed into the Corporation Wars books is that a certain experience that I had, which is that when I was in the trenches of Usenet in the 1990s, I would got involved in all the ferocious arguments that went on there when the internet was smaller and more ferocious than it is now. And I realized that some of the people that I had known then as anarcho-capitalists and libertarians had drifted over the years into a position that would now be called alt-right. I, I won't name any names, but I'm sure you, you all know some. And I found that disturbing and interesting. And in, in the novels themselves, the in some ways, some of the characters, some of the, the lower level uh, corporations, the legal, the law companies and the defense companies think they're living in anarcho-capitalism. The human beings, where they exist, or the post-human beings have been revived, think they're living in some kind of communist utopia where everything is free, and the overriding AIs that um, run it all, albeit at, at a great many removes, seem to think they're running something like socialism with Chinese characteristics <laughs> where they're they're in charge but everybody else goes and does their own thing. 
And if they do, do their own thing in too dangerous a way, they get jumped on. But otherwise, um, it's it's pretty uh, pretty much free and fair competition. So yeah, I've I've tried to recomplicate these ideas and put them into a new context. By the way, Ken has brought up uh, twice now neo reaction, um, and uh, one thing I just wanted to say is, oh, I'm, I'm hearing myself. Am I sounding normal to you guys? We're getting yeah. some duplication on the line. I'm not sure what it's from. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I think it's stopped. Anyway, uh, Ken has mentioned twice now um, looking at uh, both anarcho-capitalism and neo-reaction, uh, which I found a fascinating thing. Um, if uh, I, I imagine everyone's familiar with it, but uh, Ken's first four or early four books, uh, the Fall Revolution series, um, I just absolutely loved, and they were formative on sort of what I was doing because he looked at uh, – similar scenario several times with different solutions. Um, and there was one where sort of Greens did very well, another one where sort of Trotskyists uh, did well, another one where anarcho-capitalism won. And um, I, one thing I just find amazing over the last five or 10 years is that uh, Mencius Moldbug or uh, Curtis Yarvin has come up with this uh, sort of revived concept of reaction, but neo-reaction. And uh, it, it doesn't have a big following, but it has a somewhat influential uh, following. And, you know, there's some big names out there. And so one thing that I'm doing with my series, and, uh, you know, it's not so much evident in books one and two, but books three and four show it a bit more, is show a tension. Um, you know, th there's multiple different theses out there. There's anarcho-capitalism, there's conventional statism, there's neo-reaction. And, uh, you know, one interesting thing about a lot of neo-reactionary thought, um, you know, a conventional libertarian would say, my God, this is the opposite of libertarianism. It's, it's centralization and authority. Um, but a anarcho-capitalist friendly neo-reactionary would say, actually, no, it's, it's very similar end goals, which is human freedom uh, with an entirely different mechanism. Um, and so I, I find it interesting that Ken is looking at neo-reaction uh, in his fiction. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's a very interesting tension with anarcho-capitalism. So what is it about, um, what is it about the Prometheus Awards that made, um, made your work so appealing to them that they would put them on the shortlist? Anybody can answer that. Well, I just spoke. I'll let someone else go. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll take a swing at it. I think in the Torchship books, a lot of it was just tossing out various options of of freedom of alternate government systems. You know, where there's a very tightly controlled status system, where there's this loose assemblage of worlds that each have a different form of government. One auctions off, you know, parliamentary seats on the grounds that it cuts out the middleman. Uh, <laughs> one, one has a fairly, you know, conventional system. And there's one which is a pseudo-feudalistic thing where if you want to have a government, you can simply lease a chunk of land from a higher level government and set up your own laws there. And so they have this system where you can have your island with whatever set of rules you want and people vote with their feet. And on the larger scale, part of the climax of the novel is establishing a treaty 
entitling everyone to vote with their feet among the various governments that are coexisting. Wow, I just had a really, really great question to ask and I completely forgot it. That's horrible, that's awful. Well, while you're thinking, I could answer the previous one. Uh, sure. John. So, and my guess about the Prometheus Awards and why they um, nominated, why it was speculators nominated last year and drug lord finalists this year, um, might be that we are, Doug and I are so focused on the individual um, and what an individual moral person does um, by with, with the morality defined, of course, as we would define morality, which is a libertarian anarcho-capitalist morality, or no initiation of force and fraud. Um, and that focus on what the individual does, which is very different than what a government does or what a group of people on a colony do, because, well, groups don't, their groups aren't really moral actors. They, they don't make moral decisions, whereas the individual does make moral decisions and decides whether the ends justify the means or whether um, means are used um, no matter what their morality to accomplish certain ends. And that's, that's that big battle between the people who believe the ends justify the means and the people who think that no end can be justified by immoral means. Um, and trying to do that battle inside the, inside the head of our, of our gradually maturing lead character as he goes from a 23-year-old in the previous book, Speculator, to a 30-year-old in, in the pharmaceutical world, um, while simultaneously looking at not just the individual morality decisions, but what is the, that, what is the relationship between morality and legality. Um, in our probably where Prometheus Ward folk are looking is at the libertarianism of it, because our books aren't our future, they, they're essentially today um, with science that is um, invented. So it's, it's science fiction, but it's, um, it's, con it's contemporary. All right, let me uh, ask a question. Uh, this is a general question anybody can answer. We're, you know, we're getting somewhat close to the deadline. So I wanna give everybody a chance to do something interesting before we take off. Um, what one thing about your books or series would an audience find most surprising, do you think? Hmm. <laughs> Brain teaser. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for softball questions here, folks. This is uh, you gotta bring your A game. You know, I, I think that if a libertarian reader opened my book, um, you know, there, there's a lot of libertarian science fiction out there, libertarian fiction in general, uh, that is sort of like a, a Christian movie for a Christian audience, which is, you know, it, it delivers the line that you're hoping to get. It makes you feel good about you and your tribe. Uh, you've got the answers. Um, and, you know, I was, I, I'm, I'm still a libertarian and anarcho-capitalist, uh, you know, at the grand old age of 46. Um, uh, but with a little bit of wisdom gained over the last 20 years, um, I've seen that, the easy answers and the explanations about why libertarianism works smoothly and delivers perfect answers and everything. Uh, the world is more complicated than a lot of simple theories uh, would have it be. Um, so I think that if a libertarian came to my science fiction, um, they would say, you know, hmm, I, I thought that the libertarian uh, 
path would be more easy. Uh, you know, maybe expecting a little bit of more of a Mary Sue um, and might say that, you know, I, I found it surprising that you showed the libertarians having internal factional fights, having difficulty coordinating uh, and, and, and other complications. Um, and if a mainstream person read it, I think they might uh, be a little bit surprised in, in a similar way um, that, you know, oh, I saw this was a libertarian and I thought it was going to be, you know, utter schlock. Um, with a lot of political ranting, but, uh, you know, the politics are pretty minor and I can mostly read a story about an AI that might be going exponential and having a hard takeoff, um, about a race of intelligent dogs that fear for genocide, um, about, you know, lunar colonization and big rusty spaceships. Uh, so those are two different angles, uh, as an answer. I think some of the biggest surprises my folks, folks have had reading my books is uh, on the technical side, for one, the concept of you're afraid of a computer virus or artificial intelligence or something infecting your planet's network, so you don't allow ships with computers to come visit your planet. If anybody wants to come you know, to your planet, they have to navigate with slide rules and have a sextant for navigating and have a totally analog system so that they cannot have any kind of you know, dangerous data to infect your system. Um, although, well, okay, looking at the Amazon reviews, apparently what most people were most surprised were was that there was sex in a hard science fiction novel. That was apparently shocking for a few people. They, they've never read uh, Asimov, have they? <laughs> yeah, well, there was also someone who was shocked at the concept of a Christian who would both say grace at meal and take the Lord's name in vain and swear the next day. Um, I have to wonder what church they're attending. Yeah, I was about to say, it doesn't sound like they've met many actual Christians. That's uh... um, So, uh, Mr. McLeod, uh, what would be, do you think, the single most surprising aspect of your book? I'm trying to think, actually. The thing that surprised me writing them was just how much um, fun you can have with philosophical thought experiments and what is ostensibly basically a space opera about little robots hitting each other. Like when you have people living in a virtual reality and they're told by an apparently reliable source that some of the other people living in that virtual reality are what are called philosophical zombies um, who act exactly like normal human beings and to all appearances think they are normal human beings but who you're assured don't have any subjective self-awareness. What happens to your um, morality and your different interactions with them? Or what happens to a being that comes to self-awareness and discovers that every piece of every piece of it, whether it's hardware or software, body or mind, is actually the property of a, a larger corporation. How do you get? How does it get out of that? How does it assert its personhood when it is legally property? And how does it defend that? And I found that you know that aspect of the story was the most fun. I mean, I, I brought in a lot of slam bang action and space battles that are over in microseconds and this kind of thing and tried tried to really think it through but it was 
when, when you try, it was the discovery was that when you try to think through through these things and think through them from the point of view of the machines, you you do come up with some surprising and amusing results. And uh, what about you, Mr. Hunt? What do you think would be audiences find most surprising about your nominated work? Yeah, I, I think that I've, I've seen some some reviews that are surprised that uh, Doug, who's uh, you know he's got this newspaper uh, newsletter history um, newsletter and 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 nonfiction writing. You know, he's a he was a number one New York Best Times bestseller financial nonfiction could write uh, compelling fiction that would inform them about things, about their government, about bureaucracy, about sociopaths and versus good people. Um, and I think that was a surprise. And I think maybe that's why Doug brought me in because I had written fiction um, in the form of National Institute of Health grants and the like. <laughs> I'm a doctor, I'm a research academic. <laughs> um, and so that uh, we worked together and maybe that might be the biggest surprise, but the biggest surprise to me is how when we read our books now or when we go through them, we can't tell who's writing what line. I have no idea whether I wrote it or Doug wrote it. Um, it's so blended together now, and that has been a wonderful process. All right, we have, uh, we have about eight minutes left in the show. Um, I'll start with Mr. Gallagher and uh, give you a chance to uh, say whatever, whatever you want before we take off. Okay, well, thank you for being willing to have us on. Uh, thank you to all of the other authors uh, for joining in on this, on a uh, kind of spur-of-the-moment inspiration to see if we can get folks together. And I was just thrilled by the uh, good response. And uh, thank you, everybody out there who's uh, read my books. I appreciate the support, and uh, I intend to keep writing. I have a uh, fantasy novel in work and uh, some space opera that will be coming down the line that is, you know, which are both also looking at some of the things about how do humans get along with each other and organize with each other to protect their you know, individual freedom while still managing to get things done and survive. Um, what about you, Mr. McLeod? Do you have any final thoughts? Uh, well, I would echo that point about thanking the LFS for, for the nomination and thanking everyone who's listened and everyone who's read um, I, these novels and my previous novels, nearly all of which in one way or another, do try to wrestle with issues of liberty and um, government and so on. And to say that, well, the next thing that I'm working on, my, my current project is, uh, is editing a book that is built around some drawings that were left by the late Ian M. Banks. Mm. So if anyone who, anyone who has liked the culture novels, which I know even some libertarians do, oh, I love um, there's, there's, um, there will be a, a, a book coming out next year with quite a lot of Ian's words in it, some of mine, and lots and lots of drawings of um, things from the culture. So watch this space. Um, do you have any, uh, any last thoughts, Travis? Yeah. Um, 
So uh, just as a quick tangent, uh, Ken said almost sort of, and if any libertarians uh, like Ian Banks, and um, I, I just want to mention that I think that uh, some of the best science fiction uh, and science fiction authors are on the left, um, which I find, uh, well, I guess I, I don't want to say I find surprising, but um, I love uh, Ken's stuff, which is sort of a, a left libertarian perspective, uh, Ian Banks. Uh, the same, uh, China Mayavel, which is, you know, likewise sort of uh, Marxist uh, influenced. And I, I think that uh, in the current year, there's a lot of uh, tribalism where sort of the, the pink and the red or whatever the colors are in science fiction are fighting. Um, and uh, I, I just think that's really foolish because there's just the best science fiction to my mind comes from the political extremes where you've got these people who uh, passionately have these political opinions but are rationalist enough to be uh, very good uh, partisans and uh, advocates for their positions um, and and the artwork that goes with it uh, as, as far as you know sort of the artistry of writing is often top-notch um, but uh, as far as uh, I guess reach giving wrap-ups um, you know, please check out my novels, Powers of the Earth, and then Causes of Separation. Uh, right now, I'm actually taking a break from fiction writing to uh, write um, about homesteading and farming, which is something I've been doing for several years now. And as per the Heinlein quote, I am leaning towards the title, a human, a human being should be able to butcher a hog. Um, and after a month or so of work, I'm going to switch back to books three and four in the Aristillus series, uh, which are going to confront anarcho-capitalism uh, with hardcore uh, left-wing activism. Um, there was a post that went around the internet recently, Days of Rage, um, and that's something that's uh, going to be very influential. And uh, also it's going to drag in sort of a neo-reaction um, or, uh, you know, helicopter uh, uh, Pinochet um, sort of things that have to be struggled with. And uh, that'll be rolling out over the next uh, probably two years or so. And I'd like to uh, thank all of the other guests here. It was a, a pleasure and an honor to chat with them. And uh, Ken and Carl, I want to apologize that I am a little bit behind on reading your books, but I'd like to reassure you that I am buying them. So uh, the revenues are flowing, even if they're stacked up next to my reading chair right now. I'm uh, on book one of each of your uh, most recent series. Thank you. Thank um, you. Do you have any last words, Mr. Hunt? Sure. Um, no, wait a minute, Mr. Hunt. Now I feel like that guy from Mission Impossible giving instructions to secret agent. <laughs> this podcast um, will self-destruct. <laughs> um, yeah, only my kids call me Doctor Hunt, so it's uh, Mr. Hunt works. John is what most people in the world call me. Um, anyhow, I'm grateful. Uh, Doug and I are both very grateful for the opportunity to to uh, be considered for this. It's great. We're um, hoping that all of you all win, as I said earlier, um, <laughs> I think it's all, all, all deserved. Um, I'm hoping that our readers will give, the, give our books to their young their kids at age, you know, 15 to 18 to 20 to help um, provide kind of the opposite, the, the not necessarily extreme, but what I'd call just the, the libertarian morality, the voluntarism, the, the value of, of, not coercing others to give them a little exposure to that before they go off to college and get their uh, progressive indoctrination. And at least in the United States, the university is um, pretty heavy into the indoctrination and the acceptability of ends justifying the means. I want mm -hmm. to give them a little inoculation to help stop that. All right. Well, uh, I myself would also like to thank everyone for coming on the show, being willing to sit down and uh, 
and discuss all this stuff. Uh, I thought we had a fascinating discussion. I very much appreciate all of you coming on the show. I appreciate everybody who showed up uh, in the chat to uh, listen to the show live. Um, apparently, our guests were so scintillating and uh, exacting in their language that we had no actual questions. Everybody just wanted to sit there and listen to the show. So congratulations on that, gentlemen. Um, this is Geek Gab, uh, Saturday, April 14th for two 2018, living right here in the future. Uh, this is episode 138, by the way, folks. So uh, if you've been keeping track, if you've been listening to the show since the beginning, you've heard a lot of really, really great podcast stuff. Now, uh, just to let you know, those of you who are new, we can be found on YouTube at GeekGab, youtube.com slash GeekGab. And surprisingly enough, if you consult either the iTunes store, soundcloud.com, or the Google Play store, you can do a search for GeekGab, find this podcast, and subscribe to it. And you will have about once a week uh, an excellent and scintillating discretion delivered straight to the media player or media playing program of your choice. Folks, we are out of here for today. We're gone. We're leaving but uh, especially John, and we'll, we will be back.